Revelation 13. Let's actually begin in verse 17 of chapter 2. Because if you look at chapter 13, and depending on your translation, the the New American Standard Bible, um, the first sentence of chapter 13, if you're reading it in the Greek, really flows better and belongs with the end of verse 17 of chapter 12. So let's start in that verse and, and continue in. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. The woman was Israel, is Israel, will be Israel. The dragon is Satan. Went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, or literally the dragon stood on the sea. Then we begin chapter 13. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Down in verse 18 of chapter 13, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Joe read that this morning as we're one song into worship, and I stood there, and I kid you not, the first thing that came to mind was, you have got to be kidding me. Are you kidding me? That's your scripture reading for this morning? No, I mean, did you hear what we just read? The beast! God bless you. Have a nice day. What, what is that? Read a psalm or something. You know, some praise. But, but are you kidding? And that's how I felt through the week as I was studying this. You know, we, we've come to this point. We're studying Revelation 13 because, you know, we're in Revelation 13. But how, how do you apply something like this? And the beast was coming up out of the sea. Ten horns and seven. I mean, come on. It's just weird. Strange. But it's here. And so we have to look at it. And so my prayer is, as we come into this, and I'm just going to pray it one more time now, is that, Lord, you would show us what you want us to see. And you would make application that you need to make And Lord, I do ask that we don't just walk out of here with information. But again, revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. The beast. Jesus spoke an ominous truth. John heard it, recorded it, wrote it down for us. John chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And Jesus was talking about the beast. A beast with a name. A beast who will come in his own name. Who will make a name for himself. John would later put a label to this demonic despot, this beast with a name. 1 John 2.22, he said, Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. The Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. He says in 1 John 4, verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. 
Second John, verse 7, he said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Antichrist, the beast, Antichristos. So the word, we derive it directly out of the Greek, and it means either against Christ or in the place of Christ. Against Christ or another Christ. This is the one who comes contrary to the Messiah anointing of Jesus, opposed to it, or or he claims it for himself. In the case of Antichrist, it, it is both. Contrary to Christ, but claiming Christness. For himself. He's called in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, the little horn. The little horn. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, he's called the coming prince. Daniel 11, verse 36, he's the willful king, or the king who does as he wills. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, we already saw him. He's the rider on the white horse. And of course, here in Revelation 13, he is referred to as the beast. Note those names. He also has two more telltale titles that Paul refers to him with. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, speaking of the day of the Lord, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Man of lawlessness... Son of Destruction, along with all these other titles, Little Horn, Coming Prince, Willful King, Rider on the White Horse, The Beast, he is the man of lawlessness. Why? Because he will try to live above the law. Because he'll try to live beyond the law. He'll try to dictate new law. In fact, Daniel 7.25 says, He'll speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. By the way, did you note that? It says he will wear down the saints of the highest one. A little subtle teaching there, a little side note. That's what Satan does. He just tries to wear you down. Little at a time, pushing at you. You know, that's why you start to watch a television show, a program, a Netflix show, and three, four shows into it, everything's fine. And then about the fourth or fifth show, when you are in, when you're invested, when you want to see what happens, stuff starts to happen that you know you shouldn't be watching. That if it was in the first episode, you would have turned it off and gone to something else. But by the fourth or fifth or the second season, see, he wears you down. Antichrist is going to do this. Wear down the saints. Go after them doggedly. Just wearing them out. But he's a man of lawlessness. He's not going to consider law as anything absolute. He's going to make changes. He's also called the son of destruction. Now that word destruction can also be translated or is literally perdition. The son of destruction, son of perdition or waste. He's the son of waste. Because for all his intellect and intuition and eloquent influence, as we'll see, he's a waste. He is a complete and utter waste. Like his namesake, tragically. John 17, verse 12, Jesus said, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, speaking about the apostles, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. You gave me twelve, eleven were saved, one perished. 
the son of perdition, the son of waste, the son of destruction, and you know his name, Judas Iscariot. And I believe personally that the same demonic entity that enticed Judas into the betrayal of Jesus is going to fill the man of lawlessness. That Antichrist is a man, will be a man, we'll see this in a bit, but Antichrist is a spirit. John already said he's already in the world. He said that in the first century. The spirit of Antichrist, John said, is already in the world. Already at work. This spirit will fill the man of lawlessness, the son of waste or destruction. And by the way, both Judas and the coming Antichrist, the man who will rise up, this world leader as described in the scriptures, both of them share a pattern. And the pattern is that first the Antichrist spirit fills the man, and then Satan himself enters the man to finish the job. Luke 22, verse 3 says, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. That was at the Last Supper. What a, what a tragic, stunning moment. John 13, 27 says, after the morsel, Jesus had taken the morsel, dipped it, handed it to Judas as a show of, of friendship and affection. Almost pleading with him to remain and not to betray him. Hands him the morsel and it says, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Satan did. The devil himself. John 13, verse 30. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And John says, and it was night. So first, Antichrist fills. And then Satan himself fills. Antichrist, the man, get this, is as real, will be as real and as filled as Judas was himself. And a self-possessed world leader will come on the scene with what appears to be the answer for all the world's problems. Keep your finger in Revelation 13 and let's go back to Daniel. Daniel, the key to unlocking Revelation, Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. I want to show you a few passages this morning. Daniel's going to help us out a lot in understanding the traits and the and the behavior of this one called the beast, Antichrist. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. Give you a moment to get there. Daniel 8, 23. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. Insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. That is, he will be taking, taken down supernaturally. No human being is going to take him out. God's going to do it. Jesus Christ himself will take care of this. Now, some people read Daniel and they say, wow, this stuff was fulfilled, you know, in the time of the Maccabees and, and in the run-up to the first century. It's, it's all fulfilled. It's all past tense stuff. Well, then explain to me why Jesus pointed it forward. Matthew 24, 
He took the prophecies of Daniel and he said, when you see this happening, explain to me why the Apostle Paul would glom on to this description of Antichrist and describe him as one who will come in the future, not one who came in the past. Look at Daniel 9, verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now that's prophetic language, it's mysterious language, and at the time, reading it, you would have said, I'm not sure what Daniel's saying. Daniel didn't know what Daniel was saying. But we began to get pictures pictures of this down through time. We saw in about 167 B.C., the man rise called Antiochus Epiphanes, who did abominable things and set up what would fit the description of the abomination of desolation in the temple, spattering pig's blood soup all over the inside of the sanctuary to defile it and desecrate it as abominable before God. Oh, so that's it? Well, the thing is, then Jesus comes along in the first century and says when you see this taking place you need to flee we talked about that on Wednesday night the fleeing of the people of Israel this is a time yet future and it is a time that is coming look over at Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 now you don't have to do this but I do this to remind myself I have a dark line drawn between verse 35 and 36 in Daniel chapter 11. Because in between those two verses, we leap 2,000 years. We leap from verse 35, which is a time of Israel, to verse 36, all the way through. What's in between that is the times of the Gentiles. It's a huge leap in time. And in between, God's prophetic clock stops. Because what's described here at the end of verse 35 ceases, it stops And then verse 36 picks up at the time that Antichrist rises and is revealed. Verse 36 says, Then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will, note this, he will prosper, get this, until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. When the Hebrew Scriptures talks about the indignation, it's the tribulation. It's prophetic of that final seven-year period. The word is za'am in the Hebrew. We see it in different places, always referring out to, looking out to that time of the wrath of God being poured out on the world. The indignation. Which is how we know we've jumped from verse 35 to verse 36. We've jumped that 2,000 years, or at least across the time of the Gentiles. The za'am, the indignation. Isaiah 26 verse 20 says, Come my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation runs its course. So that's the tribulation period. But continue on, verse 37 of Daniel 11. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. That shouldn't probably be gods. It should be God. The reason why you see it in the plural is it is a plural word, but the word is Elohim, which is always the word applied to God in the plural because we know God is three in one. So it says literally, he will show no regard for the Elohim of his fathers, the God of his fathers. What does that tell you about Antichrist? Perhaps he's Jewish because the God of my fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. That's a very Jewish phrase. 
and he will show no regard for the God of his fathers. Or, note this, for the desire of women. It has been suggested that Antichrist is homosexual, or will be. Which is funny, because reading this, even a decade ago, 20 years ago, I would have thought, how can a world leader, you know, stand up and, and be homosexual? How, how would that be accepted? I mean, it wouldn't have been accepted in this society, in this culture, as just a, an acceptable thing. You know, it's just, well, look at the world in which we live. It's easily accepted. We have all kinds of leaders who, who are homosexual. Nor will he show regard for any god. So really, the, main, the, the mindset here is secular, even pagan. Uh, but not pagan, because I guess pagan probably would be looking after another god. He's a secular being. He has no concern or care for spiritual things. Remember that the mindset on the flesh is death. Antichrist has a mindset on the flesh. He will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, or literally a god of weapons. This guy's going to be all about the warfare. A God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him, that is the God of fortresses, that is weaponry, he will honor with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He's going to pour money into his armory. He will take action, verse 39, against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Verse 41, skipping verse 40, we'll read that another time. He will also enter the beautiful land. The beautiful land is always Israel. Did I mention we're going to Israel on March 24th of 2020? (laughs) You're all invited to come. He will enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. That's a fascinating verse we talked about Wednesday. And if you didn't hear that, you need to go back and check it out. Listen to it. Verse 45, skipping down, says, He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Where would that be? Well, the beautiful holy mountain is Jerusalem. The seas would be, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and you've got the Dead Sea, and you've got the Red Sea. And what's up there in between, actually just to the north of Jerusalem in this area, is Megiddo. Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon. And he's going to set up camp right there, preparing for that final battle. Yet he will come to his end with no one to help him. And that's just an intro to the beast. Introduction, Antichrist. But we see him rising, even as you see me moving out of the sun. Wait a minute, which way can I go here? Hang on, let me just see where the best... That's pretty good, but he's going to move. No, that's bad. Okay, we're going over here. Once or twice a year, this happens. I'm okay with it, really, truly. Talk about yourself. But Revelation 13, we come back to that. We get a little introduction. Daniel speaking curiously, interestingly. And we come to Revelation 13 and look again now at verse 1, just with some of that intro in mind. And we're going to get into it a little more specifically, I'm hoping, on Wednesday night. 
But verse 1, the actual verse 1, remember I told you the first sentence actually goes back with verse 17 of chapter 12. So picking up, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, and that is instructive. I saw the beast coming up out of the sea. In the Bible, there are two geographical points of reference that every Bible student should be aware of. Two points of reference, and one is the sea. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. The sentence before, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, is not exact. It should be the dragon stood on the sea. He stood on the sea. And then I saw a beast rising, coming up out of the sea, the sea. John is saying the sea. What sea is he talking about? The Mediterranean. When the Bible talks about the sea, unless it designates the Dead Sea or the Red Sea, when the Bible talks about the sea, that's the sea if you're in Israel. The Mediterranean is that great blue body of water that runs the entire coast of Israel. It's beautiful. And that's what he's talking about, the Mediterranean. Well, why is that an important geographic point of reference? Because the Mediterranean Sea in Hebrew thinking refers to the Sea of Humanity. It's a picture of the Sea of Humanity. The beast out of the sea. He is the beast who comes right up out of humanity. He's a man. He's a human being. Daniel 7 verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That is the Mediterranean. And behold, four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. And then he begins to describe four nations coming out of the sea, coming out of the Mediterranean. No, coming out of the sea of humanity. So the Mediterranean Sea, that point of geographic reference, is a picture of the Sea of Humanity. The other geographical reference point is the land. The land. In Hebrew, we would say Eretz. In fact, if you look it up, the actual name for the state of Israel is Eretz Israel. Eretz. E-R-E-T-Z. If you want to just spell it out. And it means the land of Israel. Land is a big deal to the Jewish people. The sea, speaking of the sea of humanity, the land is Israel. Not just the place, but the people. And note that, I've been asked that question, wait, when you talk about Israel, you talk about Jewish people, or are you talking about the land of Israel? Yes. Yes, because the two are intertwined as far as God is concerned. As they are the chosen people, the land has been given to them. They still have that right The birthright of Abraham. The promise to him. You Bible students know we've talked about many times. 300,000 square miles by God's designation. From the Nile to the Euphrates. Given to Abraham. This will be the land of your people. The land of Israel. And of that 300,000 square miles. How many square miles have they actually conquered? 30. 30,000. 30,000 out of 300,000 is the most ever held. What are you saying? Well, I'm saying that there's 270,000 square miles that's still there waiting to be received by the Jewish people. And it will be. It will be. The point is the land, the place, and the people. Israel. The land of Israel. And I'm going to have to move again because it went to another window. <laughs> the land and the sea. Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> You know what? I don't care if it's $15,000. I want blinds. And this should just stand, and that way I can move all I want. You can't catch me. 
The land and the sea. The land of Israel is God's biblical map. God's map. Jeremiah 3.19, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the people and the land. The most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Jeremiah 3.19 or Daniel 11.41. He, speaking of Antichrist, and we just read this, will enter the beautiful land. Again, Israel and many will fall. Israel is land, it's people, it's God's biblical map. So you've got those two geographic reference points. I saw the beast coming up out of the sea. The reason I point this out right now is when we get halfway into chapter 13, you're going to notice another beast. A beast coming up out of the land. A beast who is the false prophet. There's a, an unholy trinity, it's been called. The dragon, the beast from the sea, Antichrist, and the beast from the land, the false prophet. And we'll be talking about all three over the next couple of teachings here. But out of the sea of humanity, and out of the the land of Israel, we have two very distinct people groups. In fact, for much of the history of the world, there were only these two people groups. Jews and Gentiles. Just Jews and Gentiles. Nobody else. You were either Jewish or you were a Gentile. One or the other. Very simple. But out of both has risen the third group. You know of whom I speak. Galatians 3.28 says, They are neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Paul said, Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where we were. If you're not Israel, you're not chosen. You're Gentile, you're out, on your, you're out of your luck. I mean, you, you have no hope. But he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jew, Gentile, and now out of both the church. Christians. Followers of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. So as we study, we have this beast from the sea of humanity, the Antichrist. We have a beast from the land of Israel, as we'll see, the false prophet. And the third group is the church, which, by the way, is absent from this study. They're not there. In fact, if you look down at verse 9, it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Which is missing something, isn't it? If you study back, as we did over several weeks, chapters 2 and 3, you hear, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, right? Over and over, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and now suddenly, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. No Spirit. No church. Why? Because at this point, the Spirit and the church are neither on land or sea. We've been caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we shall forever be with the Lord. And this third group, by the way, as long as we're talking about them, us, this third group is not driven by a beast. We're led by a lamb. We're led by Jesus. Now back to the beast, the Antichrist, who comes out of the larger sea of humanity... He's an actual man. And keep that in mind. He comes out of the sea of humanity. And the picture John is painting is, this is a human being. This will be a man. And as strange and 
Ominous as all of the description is here in the first couple of verses, this is a symbolic description which has great meaning, but we're not talking about when you see this beast with ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems, and his heads have blasphemous names. You get this horrific picture, but John is describing who this man is, what this man comes from. Again, listen. He has ten horns, seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems. On his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet like those of the bear of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power. And you might say, that doesn't sound like any man that I know. In fact, it sounds more like the dragon. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems. Wait, that's exactly the description here of the beast. Why? Because Antichrist shares the characteristics of the dragon. They are closely linked. You know, we always take on the characteristics of the ones we follow. The ones that we honor the ones that we worship or glorify in our lives, those that we hold up, that we admire, we tend to start looking like them. It's so funny, back when I was a a youth pastor in Southern California, and you know how styles come and go and and change, and I've just given up trying to even keep up with style. But back then, the style was white tennis shoes, big, you know, like like, uh, high-top tennis shoes, and, and tight jeans, 501s, and... T-shirts tucked in with the belt. That was cool. <laughs> now I come out of my bedroom like that, my kids go, Dad, that's a dork. <laughs> so, but I, that's, you know, I just dress that way. And I started to notice there was one young man, his name was Joe Bresnahan, and I love Joey, and he's a great guy. He, he grew up to be a, a godly man. But Joey started dressing exactly like that. His mom, who worked on staff with me, said, you know why he's dressed that way? It's because that's how you dress. And I'm like, oh, that's great. (laughs) We tend to pattern ourselves after the ones that we follow or the ones we pay attention to. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough that a disciple become like his teacher and a slave like his master. That's what happens. We tend to be that way. We tend to look that way or act that way. Jesus said, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So if you are following after Jesus, you're going to be maligned in the same way Jesus was maligned. Right? We understand that. But in this this case, Antichrist is following Beelzebul the dragon. Antichrist looks like the dragon who he follows. So I remind you, what we already talked about with the dragon, we talk about also with Antichrist, seven heads with seven crowns, which speaks of seven world nations. Seven world nations that dominated Israel, and they are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and a final revived Roman Empire still to come. And we'll look more at that in coming studies. Seven heads with seven crowns. So these are dominating, ruling nations. At ten horns. Ten horns speaks of a ten-nation confederacy. And just jot this down, note it, because again, we'll explain it better later. But a ten-nation confederacy over which and from which Antichrist is going to rule. He comes up from this ten-nation confederacy 
He's going to wipe out three nations and he's going to rule over the final seven as, as the ruler literally of the world at that time. Well, Antichrist bears and shares the traits, these traits, with the devil. The devil's behind it all. The devil drives these nations because the devil drives the beast. This is going to be a driven man. Passionate, influential, and driven by Satan. Each one of the heads, note this, has blasphemous names. Now we already read this in Daniel 8 and 9 and 11. This guy's going to rise. He's skilled. He's savvy. He's politically articulate. He knows how to turn a phrase, how to gain influence, how to draw people after him. I remember watching uh, in the Obama campaign, the first one, when he was going around the world. He wasn't just campaigning. Did you know that? He didn't just campaign for America. He, He was campaigning around the world. I remember him going into Paris, and they set up a Jumbotron TV so that they could project his face over crowds of two, 300,000 people gathered in Paris to see this candidate for presidency in the United States. And I remember at the time thinking, is he the one? <laughs> no, what I thought was, wow, how quickly people fall all over themselves to follow a man. Well, this guy's going to have it. He's going to know how to say what needs to be said. But you know what? He's going to start to introduce blasphemy. He's going to speak blasphemous things. It will increase as he goes. Luke 6.45, Jesus put it this way. He said, the good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And Antichrist is going to be demon-possessed and ultimately Satan-possessed. Verse 2 gets even more graphic and bizarre. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. Now try and get this picture in your mind. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne with great authority. Swift as a leopard, plodding as a bear. Wait, how can he be swift and plodding? Well, you don't ever want to be attacked by a bear. Speaking, uh, you know, from personal experience. No, I, I haven't. I've never had that happen. But if, if you've seen how quickly, how fast those big, lumbering bears can move, they move fast. And their paws, their claws are huge. One swipe can take off a limb. And so he's described as this, as this one who's swift as a leopard. So he's going to be fast moving. He's going to rise quickly. He's going to move quickly. He's going to take power quickly. Kind of like Alexander the Great did, who, by the way, Daniel described as a leopard. So he'll be swift in his politics and in his rise to power, plodding as a bear. That is fast moving, but each step will be powerful. Powerful. And of course, roaring like a lion, which is disconcerting for everyone who hears the roar. Satan prowls around, as we saw last week, like a roaring lion seeking to devour. So Antichrist is just doing as his leader. No wonder he's called the beast. This is a beastly description. 
And he is even empowered then, as the scripture tells us, by the dragon himself. Now I want you to turn back to Daniel again for a moment, but this time go all the way back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Keeping in mind this, this picture that we've just seen of the leopard, the bear, the lion empowered by the dragon, the beast. All right? Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at the time, had a bizarre dream. And it was a, a dream that really disturbed him. And so he calls in all of his satraps and his men of wisdom and he, and he says, listen, I, I need some help interpreting this dream. And they're like, oh, no problem. Tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. <laughs> not, not a problem at all. And he says, okay, um, I'll tell you what. Just so that I know that you know what you're talking about, why don't you tell me the dream and interpret it for me? <laughs> Smart guy. And they're all like, well, you know, you have to tell us. And he says, okay, you guys are dead. You're toast. Well, then there's a young man, Daniel. Daniel comes in. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. He interprets the dream. He tells Nebuchadnezzar what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. Now, I just, I love this because I get into the scene. And I think about Daniel standing there talking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar's face getting paler and paler and paler. And his eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger as he realizes this young man knows what he dreamed. And Daniel says, Daniel 2 verse 31, You, O king, you were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, and its breast and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and then its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, up to this point in the dream... I would imagine Nebuchadnezzar on his couch, eyes closed, was going, yeah, baby, yeah. Look at the statue. I think it looked just like Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, this this is marvelous. This is awesome. You continued looking, verse 34, until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the mountain became, uh, the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That is now terrifying for Nebuchadnezzar. This glorious statue of me. And it's destroyed. And then this mountain starts just becoming a great mountain that covers the entire planet. And it was a nightmare. And it was disturbing for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel goes on to explain this dream, this glorious dream. This was the Mount Rushmore of Babylon. Okay, this was this was a dream of the nations. As Daniel would describe in the rest of Daniel chapter 2, that it was an icon of nations. The gold head, Babylon. The silver chest and arms, the the Medes and the Persians in a a co-op kingdom, ultimately that just became Persia. And then the belly of of bronze, this now is, it's um, Greece. Greece comes next. And then finally... Finally, Rome, legs of iron. Two legs, Rome, east and west. 
And then feet of iron and clay, which is curious and interesting and plays a part in the time of the end. But what I want you to understand here is in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, it was an icon to the nations. It was glorious. It was beautiful. And rebelling against the notion that a stone not cut out with human hands would destroy this statue and would become the kingdom of the world, speaking of the kingdom of Christ, rebelling against that idea altogether, what Nebuchadnezzar did next was to set up a glorious, massive, idolatrous image. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold and its height was 60 cubits. And its width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then the satraps and prefects and governors and counselors and treasurers and the guys, they all assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. Glorious, massive, beautiful. And it says that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace, a blazing fire, enter Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's another story for another time. But look what he does. He has this dream of the nations. Daniel, he, he interprets it. This is the dream of the nations that you, that you had. And so we understand that. And then he turns around and he makes this glorious statue. Again, it's an icon to humanity. It is a, it's an image to the nations of the world. And note, it's a statue. If you transfer this from cubits into feet, it was 90 feet high. Nine feet wide. This was no small image. Huge. But note... I love that we're told it in cubits, which would have been the measurement of the time anyway, but it's 60 cubits by 6 cubits. And if you notice in verse 5, surrounded by a list of musical instruments. How many? Six. Six, six, six. 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, 6 musical instruments, 6, 6, 6. Interesting. What does all this have to do with the beast? Well, we see down in verse 18, but don't go there quite yet. Antichrist is going to do the exact same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. And we will see this when we get further into chapter 13. He's going to erect a massive image of himself. And you know what this image is going to do? It's going to speak. Welcome artificial intelligence. Because this image is going to be able to look around and speak. There are some right now who, trying to discover the identity of Antichrist, say he's going to be AI. Now that's stupid, but they say that's what he's going to be. No, he won't be, but his image will. His image is going to be able to look down at people, and people are going to be forced to worship the image of the beast. And if they don't, they will have their heads chopped off. But there's more here. More to see. And the reason I took you all the way back to the beginnings of Daniel here. From a human perspective, 
The nations of humanity are grand, they're glorious, they're iconic. Through the eyes of man, look at America. America the beautiful, America the great, greatest nation in the history of the world. And we have a sense of patriotism in that greatness. We're not one of the little nations, the piddly little nations around the world. Oh, they're cute, but we're America, you know? And proud to be that. And you've got China, and you've got, you've got Russia, and the big nations. And all the nations want to be the big nations. This image is like, well, it's, it's like the ancient Tower of Babel. Nations tend themselves to be an homage to humanity. Nations themselves can tend to be worshipped as beautiful and iconic. But there's a second view. There's another perspective, a God's eye perspective, and we get it in the vision Daniel receives in Daniel chapter 7. Turn to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed and he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea, Mediterranean, sea of humanity. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Wait, 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 four what? Four beasts. The first was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And he saw this vision, this beastly, lion-like vision of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And what he saw there was a picture of Medo-Persia. I encourage you, I don't have time this morning, go back and listen to Daniel 7 and the teaching of that, because the description of the bear, each one of these things we see played out historically in very intimate and intricate ways. Well, verse 6 in his vision, I kept looking, behold, another one like a leopard. Wait a minute. Leopard, a bear, and a lion, right? The leopard is Greece, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads because Greece would divide into four separate nations from the one that was originally Alexander the Great. Beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, in the night visions, I kept looking and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So we've just talked about Rome, but this is now a new Rome. There's Rome, but translating into a more terrifying Rome that, by the way, never was really conquered. Rome that just fizzled. Rome that's still here today still exists. Certainly not the power that it was in the first century. But it just kind of decayed from within. And yet still exists. And I believe we will be seeing a revived Roman Empire. And yes, I still believe that. With all the things that have happened in the last ten years, I still believe that's where this is all headed. And I'll explain that. I keep saying in a future study, that's just to get you to come back. There's really no future study. No, I'm kidding. We will cover and and look at that more clearly. But he says in verse 8, While I was contemplating the horns, these ten horns, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. 
And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Antichrist. Antichrist. What's the point? Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel's vision. Man's view is beautiful. God's view of the nations is beastly. What what man sees as magnificent, glorious, God sees as monstrous, horrible. What nation in the history of the world has not used its power to do ghastly, beastly, inhuman things? Well, America hasn't... What nation has not been beastly? Everyone has. Why, why then does he only mention, though, back in Revelation 13, if we see four nations mentioned, and we see this great and terrible beast, why in Revelation 13 does he only mention three nations, a leopard, a, a bear, and a lion? Why just those three? Because while Antichrist will personify the greatness of Greece and the maneuvers of Medo-Persia and the brutality of Babylon, he embodies and rules over the fourth nation. The fourth nation is present at the midpoint of the tribulation. The fourth nation, the dreadful, terrifyingly, extremely strong beast, will be the revived Roman Empire under the rule and reign of the Antichrist. It is the empire of Antichrist. It's not mentioned here because it's happening here. It's part of what's going on in chapter 13 as Antichrist rises. Now, who is he? Everyone wants to know. What's the identity of the Antichrist? A, is he alive today in the world? Could be. I don't know. Okay, but who is he? I mean, if he's alive, who do you think the Antichrist is? It's 2019. Look it up. Antichrist 2019. See what you come up with online. It's, it's very interesting. <laughs> kind of a lot of fun. You know, I think I saw Rachel's name. I'm not sure. No. no, no. From Barack Obama. Who, by the way, is still very young. Still very much in play. Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump. You know, it's really funny. If you're a Republican, all the Democratic leaders are the Antichrist. If you're a Democrat, <laughs> it's all the Republican leaders. Every president going back decades was called the Antichrist by somebody. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the Antichrist. They were sure of it. Prophecy students way back in the day. <laughs> Donald Trump. Or a new favorite that people are starting to point to, and that is his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who is a Jew. He's just finished Trump's deal of the century, the peace plan for Israel and the Palestinians. It's finished. It's, it's, It's in the can. It's written up, ready to go. And the only reason why it hasn't been unveiled, I think I told you recently, is they're waiting until after the Israeli elections of April 9th. So coming after the elections, unveiling the peace plan. Jared Kushner. Hmm. Other names have been floated as well. Emmanuel Macron. Interesting thought. Vladimir Putin. Although I don't know about Vlad. He's he's getting a little old. Could be. (laughs) 
What about Pope Francis? Many people are saying, Pope Francis. And I'm like, nah, Pope Francis won't be the Antichrist. False prophet maybe, but I don't think the Antichrist. (laughs) Sorry, I'm trying to offend everyone I can. From prophecy buffs, and here's the thing, please listen. From prophecy buffs to end times enthusiasts, so much time and interest and energy has been put into the identity of Antichrist. There are people who are watching this constantly, studying the scriptures, looking at the world scene, eyes on the leaders. Who could this possibly be? Wanting to be able to call that person out. You know what? I don't know, and I don't care. I don't care. I have no interest in discussing or debating or discovering the personal identity of The Antichrist. You know the Apostle John even downplayed that? That is the search for his identity. He said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it's the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. So while Antichrist is a man and will be a world leader and will rise and do great harm and great destruction, Antichrist is also a spirit. And there are many antichrists, that is, many attitudes or many spirits of this behavior. That is, either claiming to be Christ, a false Christ, a false prophet, or just contrary to Christ, saying that he's irrelevant to your life. Either way, it's the antichrist spirit. And I personally believe that this spirit, this demonic spirit, has been at work in the world for centuries. Driving the the pharaohs. And the Hamans, and the Neros, and the Hitlers, driving world leaders of every generation. You see, Satan doesn't know the day or the hour either. He's got to have his man ready. He's got to have a spirit on the scene ready to take control when the right guy rises, when the right time happens. But here's the thing. Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged or commanded to watch for Antichrist. And that was my struggle this week. Reading these verses going, I don't want to talk about him. I mean, there's information to be had, as we've seen, and you can study it out. It's interesting, especially to see how prophecy is fulfilled. But talking about Antichrist here on a Sunday morning, I don't want to do it. Because we... Titus 2 verse 13 are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Not looking for Antichrist, as we've said, but looking for Jesus Christ. Eyes on Jesus Christ. This is still the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of Antichrist. So what are we to do? Listen, we live in a culture, really in a world that is gripped with fear and anxiety and depression. I mean, American culture, uh, like many of us have never seen it before. We parents, we see it in our kids. Not not you two daughters, you're, you're cool. We see it in our children, we, we see it in our friends, we see it in co-workers, we see it in family. Anxiety that doesn't have basis in reality. Worry, dread, fear. Fears of war and rumors of war and fears of terror. Random acts of violence. 
You can't even go to a concert without looking around. Have you done this? We like to go to the movies up in Bellingham. And I love that first row behind the bar where you're kind of seated up a little bit higher and no one's in front of you. And, and, but you're a sitting duck. I'm a sitting duck right here. The gunman comes in this church. Hello! And we don't even like to talk about that. I mean, John Linus, who's heading up security, he, he, I've had conversations with John. He said, I, I just don't even like thinking about this. I have to think about this. He loves you. <laughs> he cares so deeply for this body. But he worries about what could happen. I mean, in schools and movie theaters and churches and synagogues, the people have been shot up who just came for a place of worship, a place of peace. There's a lot of fear. Fear of economic collapse. People living paycheck to paycheck. And what happens if the dollar dives and it all goes away? What what do we do then? People fearing environmental disaster. And then you add on top of all of that fear and so much more, the media and social media driving this social anxiety. And many people today are having trouble even getting up out of bed and facing life. Just getting up and going to work. Gripped with fear and anxiety. By the way, this is, I believe, for this generation, specifically the millennial generation, I believe this is the driving force behind the lure of socialism. Take care of me. Just take care of me. Uh, We need social programs. I need someone to promise me that I can have health insurance. I need someone to promise me that I can retire someday and have an income. I I need people to come take care of me. We need more laws. I need them to stop saying things that offend me. (laughs) There's this incredible anxiety. and Yeah, socialism. Why not have a social environment where we just take care of each other and everybody makes the same and the government has its care of us all. Did you notice the governments in Daniel? Beastly. Let me just tell you, young people, you don't understand socialism. And the damage that it's done. But if you'd like to study Venezuela and what's going on right now, that could be America in a decade. Just take a look at it. That's socialism. That's where it goes. Socialism's never worked. But socialism sounds good in an anxious world. Or worse than socialism, as we talked about a few weeks ago, globalism. Let's just all get together. Let's build Babel. Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Glory to the nations, and we, the world, will save ourselves. And so we're in a generation, a time that is seized with dread and worry and growing fret and fear, desperation, looking for something or someone or some system to come riding in and save us from ourselves. Did you hear that? Save us from ourselves. Well, if ourselves is the problem, who from ourselves can save us? What is the logic of this? We need a a leader. We need a man to rise up. Why? And then some ladies might say, well, we need a woman to rise up. Why? (laughs) Our shepherds were were at at Cedar Springs this weekend. And the first night was glorious. It was just us. We were there all by ourselves. Yeah, I'm going there, Glenn. And we, we had the whole dining hall to ourselves. Just the guys. Men being men with men. It was glorious. We're building statues, you know. And Saturday morning, women's retreat. Not just, a, yeah, 
Yeah, Lori Beth, it was it was frightening. We walked in there for breakfast and it was perfume as far as the nose could smell. It was so funny because I did walk in there and went, well, this is a women's retreat. I knew before I saw a single woman. It, was, it smelled so good. If it was a men's retreat, you'd be like, yeah, it's a men's retreat. You know, we all have our smells. We go in there. There's women everywhere. It was so funny. I, I still have this vivid picture of Glenn. Who was sitting with you on that last? Joe. No, no. Yeah, yeah, it was Joe. <laughs> Glenn and Joe, we had a table in the back of the room, you know, kind of set off, and, and, and in front of the table is a sea of women. And there's the table up against the back wall, and on the back side of the table, and the two furthest seats away from the women were Glenn and Joe, and they looked terrified. Why am I even talking about that? Oh, so a woman can rise up and save us. No, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, right now what's happening is the nations and the kingdoms of the world are being set up. We are, it's like we're cattle being guided right in by cattle prods into a single direction in this world. What is happening, we're getting set up for Antichrist rising. It is more clear to me now than it was the last time we studied Revelation 13 years ago. We are being set up. Now, I know someone's probably sitting there going, come on, pastor. All you're doing is fear-mongering for church attendance. Okay, tell you what. Go tomorrow and tell people at work what we talked about this morning. And see if they want to join you at church. (laughs) They're going to say, oh, you go to one of those churches. Okay. Fanatical, fundamentalist, freakazoid, wackadoodles. I know who you guys are talking about Antichrist. Ooh, you know. Hey, we're just Bible believing. And we're talking about this because it happens to be where we are in the Bible. But being Bible believers, listen, rather than dwelling on the sun of destruction and all the anxiety that comes in this world, we need to spend far more time dwelling on the Son of God. Rather than looking for the man of lawlessness, how about we start looking for the Prince of Peace? The one who promises peace. He said, listen, he's coming. He will bring peace. But until then, for right now, Jesus said, John 14, 27, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Here's all the truth we need to know about Antichrist today. Antichrist will rise. He will rise. Out of the sea of anxious humanity... He will rise, but He will never arrive. He will rise, but He will never arrive. What do you mean by that? Joe knows. (laughs) He'll rise, but He'll never arise. What do you mean? Verse 18. Quickly, and this is one of those teachings where I fear you're going to be driving out while people are driving in. (laughs) Revelation 13, verse 18. Look at this. This mysterious verse. Here is wisdom. So don't be an idiot. Just read it. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Hexakosioi. Hexakonta. Hex. 666. 
six in the Greek. And in fact, if you go back to the earliest manuscript that we have of Revelation 13, it's called, um, what is it called here? Papyrus 47. Papyrus 47 that contains this section of Revelation 13, all it has is just three Greek letters. Three Greek letters. It's chi, exi, sigma. Chi, exi, sigma. Just those three letters because the letters in the Greek language are also numerals. Chi is the numeral for 600. Exi is the numeral for 60. And sigma is the numeral for 6. 666 chi, exi, sigma. And Irenaeus even confirmed that that's what John wrote. In his writings in uh, Against Heresies, book 5, so you can go look it up if you'd like to, chapters 29 and 30, Irenaeus wrote down that the earliest witnesses long before him, and Irenaeus wrote about 180, the earliest witnesses who knew John and saw the text of the Revelation said, yeah, it was just, it was just those three Greek letters. 600, 60, and 6. What's the point? There are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation. Why are there 66 books in the Bible? Because God's reaching out to man. Because these books are to be read by man. Mankind, men and women, humanity. Six is the number of man. And we've talked about this over the years. Six is the number of man in the Bible. We were created on what day? The sixth day. And we could do a whole lot more just looking at six through the scriptures, but just take that. We're created on the sixth day, and God commanded that we rest on the seventh day. Six is an incomplete number. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of, well, it's the number of rest. We've often said the number of completion in the Bible is the number of rest. We're six. And we're incomplete unless we can get to seven. Six leaves us weary and worked up and worn down and wiped out and ultimately dead. At the end of a six-day work week, how do you feel? And we lost an hour this morning? So six, 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 six hundred, sixty, six is a number of a man who, though he rises, never arrives at seven. He never gets there. He is always and only six, six, six. You could go point six, 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 repeating because he never gets to seven. He never arrives at completion. He never gets to the number of rest. Rest. Jesus is rest. Oh, by the way, we see the number 666 in one other place in the Bible. Did you know this? It's here in Revelation 13, 18. It also shows up one time in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's literal again with the Hebrew lettering of 666. There's a numbering given by Ezra of the Jewish exiles, and they're returning from Babylon. And just in the middle of this numbering, and there's no explanation for it whatsoever, it's just the names of fathers and their sons, the fathers' names and the number of sons of that father who came back with the returning exiles. And when you read Ezra, chapter 2, verse 13, it says the sons of Adonikam, 666. There were 666 in that group of sons who came back with the rest of the exiles in that first wave with Zerubbabel and Joshua. The sons of Adonikam, 666. Hmm. Now, don't be distracted by 666. Too many people are. 
Rather, notice not the number, but in Ezra 2.13, notice the name of their father. Adonikam is two Hebrew words put together. Adoni, Adonai, Kam means arose. Adonai arose. My Lord arose. That's what I want to focus on. The risen Christ. The risen Jesus. I'm not trying to be mystical with Ezra 2.13 here. All I'm trying to do is make a point. If we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15.19 Verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Adoni come, my Lord arose. He has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Everybody? No, all in Christ. You want to be made alive? You're alive in Christ. You're made alive in Jesus. John's beastly description of Antichrist leaves us with a picture in Revelation 13 of the incomplete man who never gets there, never arrives. This is the man not only who is against Christ, not only who puts himself up as another Christ, but this is the man without Christ. And so he can only ever be 666. He can never be complete. Never arrives at seven. But my Lord Jesus arose. Adoni Kam. He arose. The complete man. The perfect man. The completed man. And those who die in Christ or those who are alive in Christ at His coming, guess what's going to happen to you and to me? We will no longer be the number six. We will be the completed people. Completed because now we are, we become what God intended from the beginning. We become glorified in Christ Jesus to live forever. We become imperishable. We move from six to seven. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is our peace in this world. I want to end with two psalms. Two psalms and we're done. Psalm 37. This was shared over the weekend and I just loved it. It was so encouraging. Psalm 37, note this. Just read it to you. Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious toward wrongdoers. They will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And Antichrist will rise and fade. Remember, his crown is a leafy Stephanos. Revelation chapter 6, verse 2 or 3. A leafy crown. It rots, it fades. He's going to fade like the grass quickly. Don't worry about him. Do not fret. Trust in the Lord, verse 3, and do good. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, verse 4, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, verse 5. Trust also in Him and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday, verse 7. Notice this, verse 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret. Because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes, maybe that's a boss at work. Maybe it's a co-worker who's trying to undermine you along the way. Don't fret. Don't worry. You trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Verse 8, cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord 
will inherit the land. That's why we're looking for Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus. Looking for Antichrist will only stress you out. It'll only freak you out. It'll only worry you. Look at where we're going. Look at what's happening. Look at the state of the world. Oh no, oh no, oh no. Jesus is not only coming, my friends. Jesus is here. He's with us. Eyes on Jesus Christ will take us through anything. We talked a lot about crisis this weekend. One of the realities that we came to as we're talking is that life is crisis. Once you get out of one crisis, you might have a breather, a respite, but you're going to go into another one. I'm sorry to tell you, there will be another crisis after the last one. Oh, I just got a break. Yeah, and enjoy it because another one's coming. I'm just, you know, here to encourage and build up. Crisis makes up life. That's the deal. This life is not it. This life is crisis. This is basic training. We're headed to the kingdom. But I'll tell you, and I'm almost done. Eyes on Jesus is not just eyes for the parousia. That is the coming of Christ. It's eyes on Jesus personally, presently, right now. And what I mean by that is knowing what's about to hit this world. It can produce fear. It can produce anxiety. I can be so worried. So what do you do? I keep my eyes on Him. And I want to see what He's doing. And I want to be where He is. Now, I remember going to the store with my parents, and when we would first get to the grocery store, I'd wander off to the cereal aisle, you know, and then I'd go to the toy aisle, and, and I'd do my own thing. But I'd keep an eye on the clock, because I didn't want to be there too long, because I didn't want them to leave me. So after a while, I would find them pretty quickly. I knew about how long grocery shopping took, and I'd find mom or dad, and then I'd kind of trail off, be, I'd keep an eye on them. And they'd go down an aisle, and I'd see something flashing, and so I'd go over there for a minute, but I'd... You know, and then you keep your eyes on it. See what he's doing. Join him in that. And it looks something like this. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Hey, if he's in green pastures, if he is beside quiet waters, I want to be there. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Hey, if Jesus is on the path of righteousness, that's where I want to walk. Because that's where He is. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. Even if Jesus is moving in the valley of the shadow of death, or even if He's, as it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, even if He's in the presence of my enemies, (laughs) I want to be there. Why? Because He is. Wherever He is, I want to be. You've anointed my head with oil. Wow, that's the Holy Spirit. And my cup overflows. God's provision. I want to be where He is. And wonderfully, He wants to be where I am. That's why He's given me His Spirit. To be with me always to the very end of the age, Jesus said. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when Jesus is in the house of the Lord, that's where I want to be. Father, we ask that You will keep our eyes on Jesus. We love His coming. We long for His coming. And we look for His coming. We want to see every possible sign of the return of Jesus to call His people home. 
Because we want to be there, Lord, in the place You have prepared for us. But we also ask that You help us to keep eyes on You right now. Lord, where Your people are gathered. You say, where two or three are gathered in My name, I'm there. Well, I want to be where two or three are gathered. Wherever You are, whatever You're doing. Lord Jesus, I pray You would draw our attention so that rather than walking in the fear of Antichrist, we would walk in the peace of Jesus Christ. Rather than trusting in what we think to be magnificent work of man, we would deny the beastly work and we would just look to Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus always. Teach us what it means, Lord, to to listen, to hear You, to, to talk with You. Oh, Lord, change our prayers from religious supplications to personal conversations. Lord, just capture our attention so that we want to do what You're doing. Listen to Your voice and follow where You go. Even if it means taking up our cross, that we are following You. It shouldn't be remarkable, Lord Jesus, but it is. Whenever I speak your name, I have peace. Whenever I'm worried or fretful or stressed out, when I stop and I call your name, I am comforted immediately. And so I just pray for our body, Father. Would you remove anxiety from this place? Would you remove fear and fretting and terror and worry and dread? All these things that are the toolbox of Satan, just, Lord, take that away. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and to walk with love, joy, peace, Lord, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord Jesus, because we're walking where you are. In Jesus' name, amen.